Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm so honored to have David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-executive chairman of private equity giant Carlyle. David co-founded Carlyle in 1987 and served as the firm's co-CEO, growing it to its current status of managing $221 billion. Prior to Carlyle, David practiced in law in Washington, D.C. and worked in the Carter administration, among many other things. David is also known for his tremendous philanthropic efforts. He serves on a number of boards, including the JFK Center for Performing Arts, the Smithsonian Institution, and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. David is a magna cum laude graduate of Duke and holds a degree from the University of Chicago Law. Let's welcome David. Hi, David. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you here. Uh, I feel like we have so many great questions and we're going to get a lot of wisdom out of this. I want to start, David, with Carlisle. When you were 37, you read that most entrepreneurs found companies between the ages of 28 and 37, and it prompted you to decide to take the leap. What drove you in that moment to go from an established career path as a lawyer to a founder, and what did it feel like for you? Well, I had worked in the White House for President Carter, and I thought he would be reelected, and I would be the senior domestic advisor in the second term, and then basically have the life of a Washington insider, lawyer, lobbyist kind of thing. Eventually, maybe wind up as a cabinet officer, but Carter lost. So I had to go back and practice law, and I quickly realized that I didn't like the practice of law. And if you, as you know, you can't really be successful at something if you don't like it. Nobody's won a Nobel Prize hating what they do. You have to love it. And I didn't love the practice of law. I didn't really have the great skills needed. And I just didn't feel it was such a wonderful thing to do. And then eventually, when I became a partner in the law firm, I realized that all they really cared about was how much money they were making each month. It was really a business. So I said, if I'm going to be in business, I might as well be in a business that's much more profitable. And so I came up with the idea of doing a private equity firm in Washington, which they had not been one. And I did it because, in part, I was inspired by Bill Simon, who made the great progress in making a lot of money with his famous Gibson greeting cards deal. And then also, I read that an entrepreneur typically starts his or her first company between the ages of 28 and 37. After 37, chance of doing it remote. So I decided to do it. I love that. Let's go back to the beginning of Carlisle. You decided to work with your co-founders. How did you guys practically get the firm off the ground? And what did that feel like to you? Did you feel like as you were doing it, you were on the forefront of building something massive? Were you scared? Did it feel easy? Walk us through what that early transition felt like. Well, when we came up with the idea of starting a firm, I went out and recruited a number of people and they all had finance experience. I really did not. When I we rented the, the, the space or took a lease, I said, I only want 6,000 square feet because we're never going to grow beyond that. So we had no vision then of growing it. And anybody tells you he's going to, he or she's going to grow a world-sized company when they're starting is probably, you know, exaggerating the, the likelihood of that happening. It rarely happens. But we grew the firm. And the reason we were able to do it was, one, our track record was pretty good. So that always helps. But I had an idea that transformed the parts of the private equity world. It's not exactly the greatest invention of all time, but this is basically what it was. Private equity was a mom and pop business. When KKR did the RJR deal in 1999, they only had seven people in the firm. They were tiny firms, not a lot of money, but tiny firms. I decided what we would do is we'd have our buyout fund, just like KKRs and so forth, though they were much bigger. But we would then do what Fidelity and T. Rowe Price had done, 
have a series of different funds using our brand name to kind of help sell the product. So after our buyout fund was raised, we'd have a growth fund, a venture fund, a real estate fund, and so forth. And then I would decide I would globalize the business by having funds around the world. So that was novel because there had not been any multidiscipline, multinational kind of firms before. And then obviously Blackstone, uh, Apollo, KKR, among others, have done the same thing in some cases much better than we did it. But that was the, no the novel concept that enabled us to grow. We're going to come back to how you built the brand and how you thought about the strategies of building the brand. But I want to go through the different phases of your founding story. You know, Carlisle has now been built over decades into a firm that manages $221 plus billion. That's dramatic. Everybody out there, $221 plus billion. As you think through the phases, and you may think of them in many different ways, what were the chapters? You know, how do you articulate what those decades were like as somebody who lived through them? Well, initially, we had to prove that we knew what we're doing in our core business of, of investing in what was then small buyouts. Those deals tended to work out. We then got to be well-known because I started recruiting very famous people in the firm who had no buyout experience. Frank Carlucci, former Secretary of Defense, Jim Baker, former Secretary of State, Dick Darman, former head of OMB, George Herbert Walker Bush, former President of the United States. And when these people joined, and John Major, former Prime Minister of England, when these people joined, it gave us a lot of visibility. Now, if you have a lot of visibility and do poorly, then people will make fun of you and you'll lose business. But our track record was good. And so we were able to open doors and people would invest with us. And I was willing to spend the time and energy to run around the world raising the money. I didn't have the investment background that my partners did. So in any organization, if you're going to be successful at it, and even if you're the founder of it, you have to make yourself useful. And I didn't, didn't know how to make myself useful other than going out and begging for the money. So I basically had not been a fundraiser, but I went out and taught myself how to go and ask people for money. And I started doing it all over the world and started traveling 240 days a year. So that's what we did. And ultimately the track record would turn out to be pretty good. So we could, we could build out the, the firm. I want to go back to the brand. Somebody once said to me the other day, it takes a long time to build a brand, but it equally takes a long time to kill one. So if you build a brand properly, it lasts for a lifetime. And I want to just quickly ask, what were your strategies as you built the brand at Carlisle? As I told you from afar, it was the pristine brand. It was the brand that all of my fellow classmates were dying to go work for. And it really had that tremendous sheen. And I'm sure lots of that was about the results. But what were the other strategies that you thought about as the founder behind the scenes? Well, of course, we got a lot of visibility by bringing these former government people in. But also, we did some things that were quite innovative at the time. So we would have large investor conferences where we'd have a lot of famous people speaking at, and a lot of people look forward to coming to Washington, learning about what was going on in Washington. By being from Washington, I could run around the world and talk about what's going on in the U.S. government reasonably knowledgeably. And that was very helpful because people thought they would learn a little bit about what the U.S. government's doing, which people were always interested in knowing. And also, we tended to have a lot of different funds and different products and therefore, we were in front of investors for a, a very almost repeatedly. We would have not one fund at a time, but two, three, four, five in the market. And that enabled us to go around and see our people relatively you know, frequently. We also had a culture of not being difficult to work for. We tended to have an easy culture to work at. So some of our competitor firms were not seen as being as easy to work for and more of a cutthroat kind of atmosphere. And our, our policy tended to be different than that. So you know, firms tend to reflect the personalities of the founders. And our, you know, the other founders and I were probably easy, relatively easygoing people. We weren't, you know, people who were, had the cutthroat backs around of maybe people who had been investment banking. We had no investment banking background in our firm. So there are many different things, I guess. 
I love it. David, one of the things that's obvious to me through this conversation is that you are really, really exceptional at attracting great talent. What are the tools or how do you think about that? How do you know if somebody that you're interviewing is the right fit or was the right fit for Carlisle? But clearly you were a talent magnet and clearly you've honed the ability to know that somebody is a good trusted party that should join your team. If you wanted to listen, you know, all the people listening who are also founders who are building businesses, what should they learn from you on that topic? Well, we, early on, I was interviewing all the people we hired, and I spent a lot of time recruiting people, a lot of senior people as well. And I could tell in the interview process whether somebody is likely to fit, what kind of personality do they have? Did they ask the wrong questions? Did they have interests that just weren't compatible with our personality? So when I'm interviewing young people, I tend to ask them a number of questions, and I generally expect reasonable answers. The question I almost always ask is, do you have any questions of me? And sometimes people... And to my surprise, say, I have no questions. If you're being interviewed and you have no questions, that's not a good thing. It shows you're either afraid to ask questions or you're not very creative. So ask questions, make up some questions. If anybody ever asks me what their compensation is going to be, I know that's the end of the, the interview because that's not what they should be worried about. So they should be asking you know, questions that show they've done some research. Also, you want people who are hardworking, reasonably intelligent, presentable, have teamwork capabilities, and really want to do private equity for the right reason. When you think about the right reasons, and you you just touched on this, no one's ever won a Nobel Prize doing something that they hate. Talk right. a little bit about alignment of someone genuinely loving to do something. And we're going to get to leadership in a moment because you've spent so much time um, thinking and building your new book, How to Lead, which we'll talk about. But talk a little bit about that passion for the thing that you're building or working on and why why you know that's important. Well, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. If you hate what you're doing, you'll never be good at it. And so you have to find something in life you love. Now, when you're in college or law school or business school, you might think, I want to do A, B, or C, and then you get to do A, B, or C, and you realize you don't love it, you made a mistake. I tell people, don't be afraid to experiment. Try many different things. Eventually, you should find something you love. So in your case, um, you've you know, done a number of different things. You obviously did very well in them. That's because you love what you were doing, presumably. If you hated what you were doing, you wouldn't have been able to build a successful company that you have. So you have to find a passion for it. And not everybody's cut out for private equity. Some people will get there after a while and say, look, this is what I want to do. I want to do some nonprofit things. That's nothing wrong with that. But you have to have a passion for what you're doing. And that's what makes really great entrepreneurs and great business people. They love it so much so they don't want to do anything else. I always say, if you love what you do, you'll work every day of your life with no boundaries because you love it so much. David, I want to transition to leadership. You have now for decades been extremely successful what were you like as a leader in your 30s versus today? And personally for you, what was your biggest learning? What was the thing that you could tell your, your daughters, Ellie and Alexa, myself as a young person, that, that we should all think about as we want to improve our own leadership skills? Well, I'm different than I was in my 30s because I have much more self-confidence. Then I didn't know what I was doing so much. I, we'd lost the election in 1980 to Ronald Reagan. I wasn't that good a lawyer. I'm starting a firm from scratch. People think it's going to work. So I wouldn't have the self-confidence I probably do today. Today, because I've been lucky in a number of areas, I have much more self-confidence about the things that I'm doing. But I tell young people when I make a commencement dress or something that what you should do is experiment, try things that you are interested in, find something you really love, continuously read and learn. You have to exercise your brain. It's not something you, you get uh, you learn everything when you graduate from college. When you go to a commencement, a commencement, the word for commencement is, it means beginning. It doesn't mean ending. You don't, 
you know, end your education when you get your commencement, you, you begin it. I tell people that you also should learn how to get along with other people and share the credit. And I also think you should perfect the ability to persuade other people, learn how to talk well, learn how to write well, learn how to be an example by uh, leading by example. I also tell people to make, be certain that they're, they're doing things that are filled with integrity. When I started to practice law, the head of the firm came in and said, look, you only have your reputation to go with. That's your whole life. It's going to travel with you wherever you go. It takes a lifetime to build it and five minutes to end it. So don't ruin your reputation by taking the path of least resistance and doing something unethical. And then I want people to feel that making money isn't the only purpose of life. It's nice, but in the end, you can't be buried with it. You need to do something more useful with it. And so I'm looking for people that want to do more things with their life than just make money. They want to give back to society, make the world a better place. And they'll be much happier if they find something else to do with themselves other than just making money. I couldn't agree more. So, David, I want to transition to your new book. Again, brand new book, How to Lead is what it's called, where you have spent years interviewing some of the most incredible leaders on the planet. My first question is, what surprised you most about what leaders have in common? Well, the really good leaders have recognized they got a lot of luck to get where they were, and therefore that tends to produce a lot of humility. Now, we know some leaders are not so humble, and there are some leaders we may know of who are arrogant. But as a general rule of thumb, I think you're better off to be humble, and I think it attracts more people to follow what you want to do. Uh, And so they have that in common. They also have in common uh, a pretty good work ethic. Uh, I also think they have in common a uh, recognition that they should share the credit with other people and not just say it's all about them. And then I also think that really great leaders want to do something for society more than just making money or just being famous. They want to do something where they can feel when their time on the face of the earth, relatively short period of time in the grand span of things, they are doing something useful that makes their parents proud, their children proud, their spouse proud, their partner proud. And I think that's what motivates a lot of them. I don't want to give too much of the book away, but I would love for you to just give us one of your favorite stories or one of your favorite things that you surfaced through all of your interviews for the book that really stood out to you. What would that story be? Well, Jeff Bezos is somebody that I've known for quite a while. When he started the company, he had to have a bibliography of books in print. One of our companies had it. We rented it to him for $100,000 a year. He apparently was willing to give us 30% of the company at the beginning, but we said, no, we don't want that. So <laughs> I eventually, I went out and said, no, we'll take the 30% now. We don't want the $100,000 a year. He said, it's a little bit late. I've already built the company. I don't need you so much, but you were helpful. So he gave us 1% of the stock, uh, which is worth, I don't know, today, um, for $15 billion or something. But we, we sold it early on, so we didn't make that much money off of it. Uh, when I interviewed him, he was considering whether to have a second headquarters in Washington or New York or somewhere. And so there was a lot of interest in Washington. So we were celebrating the Economic Club of Washington, our, I think it was 32nd anniversary or something. And so I interviewed him in front of 2000 people and he had a great sense of humor. And I've known him for a while and had dinner with him the night before and we get along pretty well, but he, he has a good sense of humor. And so we, we had a good conversation, but he told me three things and he told everybody three things that I wish I'd known about before. One, he never makes a big decision before 10 a.m. I wish I'd known that. I wouldn't have gone to all those breakfast meetings. He never makes a big decision after 5 p.m. Well, I wish I'd known that. I wouldn't have gone to any dinner meetings. And he also says he always gets eight hours of sleep a night. And I was thinking, geez, I've been getting only five and six hours of sleep a night. I could be a lot richer if I was getting eight hours of sleep a night. So um, he had, those are his lessons. And, you know, he obviously done extremely well. 
you know, Oprah was a great interview. George W. Bush and Bill Clinton together were great because they talked about what it's like to be a former president as well as president. So I enjoyed all the people I interviewed. And in the end, you know, what I'm really trying to do with the book is inspire younger people to read it and say, okay, I learned something from this person. I can learn something from that person. I want to be a leader myself. And I would say that, you know, not everybody's a superstar all the time from the beginning of life. So you must have been reasonably good when you were in high school, if you got into Harvard. But I don't know whether you were first in your class, your student body president. Uh, you, you know, I don't know if you're a Rhodes Scholar or things like that. But very often, the Rhodes Scholars, the, the people that are the student body presidents, the people that are the superstars at age of 17, 18, 19, and 20, sometimes they kind of fade. And the people that become the superstars are the people who, in the second part of their life, really work hard and continue to work hard. So you've obviously become very successful yourself. But I don't know whether when you were in grade school, somebody said, this person's going to be a very successful business person. They might have. But it's not clear that you know, that that will happen. In my own case, I was a, you know, modestly successful person in school, but not a superstar. The superstars all are people that in the end have faded. People who were student body presidents or all American athletes, I knew they were good, but they didn't really turn out to be leaders in the second and third third of their life. What I love most about your book, and again, the book's called How to Lead Everybody, is that you're trying to inspire young people to get more excited about leadership and to care more about leadership. And I'll just say, as somebody who's moderately young still, I think it is so important just in in, in light of everything going on in the world. And I, I am so excited for more of the book and more of the stories. David, I, I would be completely remiss not to ask you because we're in the middle of COVID. And overnight, our world has changed in, in so many ways. How do you think about COVID changing your own personal outlook on the world? And then I have a, a follow-up question to that. Well, COVID has changed the way we live and work, obviously. Now, sometimes things come along, a hurricane or a, a national tragedy of some type, and it changes the way you live for six months or maybe a year. But this is probably going to change the way we live and work for quite some time. Think about this. The Industrial Revolution changed the way people work over a period of maybe 75 to 100 years. The internet came along and over a period of maybe 25 years changed the way we live and work. The smartphone came along and over just six or seven years, it changed the way we work. The first smartphone didn't really come out, I think, until 2013. So it's changed the way we, we really live and work for quite some time. COVID has come along and because of Zooming and other equivalent kinds of things, changed the way we live and work in a very, very short period of time less than a year. I don't think we're going to go back. I don't think all of a sudden people are going to rush back to offices. All of a sudden people are going to rush to fly around the world for a meeting halfway around the world for an hour or so. I think people are going to change the way they live and work for quite some time. People are also going to take much more care of their health, I think, because I think they're all realized that, you know, you could you could die relatively quickly from COVID if you're not careful. And a lot of people have died, 228,000 or so in this country, not because they weren't careful, but sometimes they had some bad luck or they didn't take all the precautions that they should. So it has changed the way we, we live and work. In my own case, I've been in my house for six months now. I haven't basically gone anywhere, probably haven't traveled that much either. It's just hard to, to kind of take those risks. What I also have learned is by being home for six months in a row, I've learned that a lot of people call during the daytime trying to sell you products you don't really want. I've learned that people come to your door all the time trying to get you to convert your religion. And I've also learned that people like to mow the lawn in my neighborhood every hour on the hour. So I got all these electric lawnmowers. And then there's a new thing like a, a, a Ghostbuster machine that blows the leaves around. And people are coming all the time. They blow the leaves from one side of the lawn to the other side of the lawn. And I, you know, I'm learning all this. Uh, you know, I used to get people uh, calling me from, from uh, Nigeria who want to uh, you know, sell me some, something or another. They want me to deposit some money in an account and they're going to you know, get me some more money or something like that, all these kind of scams. Those people don't call anymore because I think they're all now doing lawn mowing or they're all doing the 
coming to get, convert my religion or they're calling me on the phone to get me to buy something because that's a more profitable business. People must respond to these calls because I get like 10 a day trying to get me to buy this or do this. I, I, I'm amazed at how many people are, are doing these things. <laughs> that's some great comic relief there, David. David, if we think about innovation right now, what are the areas of innovation that you're most excited about? Interestingly, I interviewed Mark Cuban for my TV show recently, and he said that he thought this was, since the time he's been alive, probably the greatest time for entrepreneurial activity. Because post-COVID, the world is going to change so much, so people that figure out how to take advantage of it in an appropriate way are going to build some great companies. In the company, in case of Carlisle, my family office, we are spending a lot of time on healthcare-related companies because healthcare has changed dramatically. Telehealth has become a big business. Obviously, technology companies are increasingly going to be more and more valuable. Biotech companies are obviously going to be increasingly, increasingly more valuable. So um, there are a lot of things that are not as going to be as good as they used to be. Now, hotels, cruise ships, airlines, maybe if you can buy a thing at the bottom of the market and maybe ride it up, but it's going to take a while for some of those businesses to come back. So, you know, in, in Carlisle and, and, and my family office, we've been looking at things that are probably going to benefit from COVID in an appropriate way, because as people change the way they live and work, we're going to see people doing different things than they used to do. Now, take, take Zoom, for example. You know, who had heard of Zoom before this? Probably not that many people. Uh, Carlisle had a company called Zoom Info, which is unrelated to Zoom, has nothing to do with Zoom. We took a public at a great valuation. I think a lot of people think it's Zoom, and I think they bought the stock because they think it's Zoom, but it's not Zoom, it's Zoom Info. But anyway, a lot of people are, you know, just more willing to take chances on opportunities than before. Right now, the investment world is, is very hot. Why is that? It's because people believe that the world is changing and, and they're afraid that the, the, that, the, that the ship is going to leave and they're not going to be on it. So people are investing relatively quickly. Maybe in some cases they're making mistakes, but I think people think the world is going through a sea change now and you're really at the beginning of it and you should capture the benefits at the beginning. I love that. David, I, I want to ask if you had to make one bet for a decade from now that you, from your purview, feel really confident about, what would it be? Well, I would invest in companies run by women because women are 50% of the population, but they are, you know, less than 5% of the owners, if that, of companies. So as the world changes, you're going to see more and more women owning companies and more and more women presumably doing well doing that. So um, that's what I, one change I think you would see. Remember, uh, when this country started, women who were married couldn't even own property in their own name. Women couldn't vote. They couldn't hold office. And now the world's changed, not as quickly as maybe it should have, but it's changed. And now you're going to see more and more women in the workforce as owners, not as hourly employees. David, I want to transition now a little bit to you. In your work on leadership, you found some of the best leaders really come from simple beginnings. What was David like growing up? Well, my experience is uh, that this. It's very rare to find somebody whose father or mother was in the Forbes 400 and all of a sudden, that person goes out and makes a billion-dollar fortune by him or herself. It's because you might not have the motivation if you grew up with billions of dollars in your family. You, you might be talented, but it's very hard to kind of have quite the drive. So I grew up in very modest circumstances, and generally the people that become successful are driven people, and they're driven because they came from blue-collar or, or lower-middle-class backgrounds. Um, so in my case, my father did not have a college or high school degree, nor did my mother. I was their only child. I grew up in a very modest house. And, um, you know, I had some drive, I guess, maybe enough to move forward. But I think it came from having very modest background and but having the loving support of the parents. The only thing you can really give your children, I think, is unconditional love and support. 
And if you give them that and, you're, and, and your children have two parents, they're likely to get off to a pretty good start. If you smother your children with too much money or too much uh, in ways of material possessions, it's not clear that their children are gonna be as successful. So for example, I've asked Bill Gates many times, what are you gonna do with your children? You know, you've got all this money and how are you gonna not smother them? And initially Bill used to say, I'm gonna give them each $10 million, that's it. Then you say a little bit more, but he hasn't quite figured it out. But imagine if you're, you're, you're Bill Gates's child, it obviously more, if you're, child, if you're accomplished, I mean, Bill's kids are pretty accomplished. People always say it's because your father was successful and so forth, even though his children do things that are unrelated to what Bill does. And I think growing up, look, Jackie Kennedy once said famously, if you mess up raising your children, nothing else in life really matters. And she was right, because in the end, our greatest legacy is going to be our children if we have children. And uh, raising children is very treacherous and very difficult. Raising children when you're wealthy is much more complicated. We all know of wealthy parents who have uh, overindulged their children, their children turn out not to be very successful and so forth. So I, I think raising children is, is time consuming. I, I don't know if you have children, but if you do, you know it's not easy to do. You, you, you stop worrying about your children roughly when they're between the ages of 50 and 60. But up until then, you're going to be worrying about them because you're always going to, when you get a call after 10 o'clock at night, you're always wondering, is your child calling if something's wrong? So raising kids is not easy. David, I want to go back. I'd be absolutely remiss not to bring up the fact that you worked as a lawyer in the Carter administration and were very deeply involved in the political sphere. What lessons did you take away from law and government before branching out into business that you thought were most interesting? Well, if you work in the White House, one of the lessons is don't let it seduce you. People used to come tell me how brilliant I was, how talented I was. And then when we lost the election to Ronald Reagan, none of them wanted to call me back when I wanted a job. So, you know, people will tell you the greatest thing in the world. You walk on water when you're in the White House. Don't let it go to your head. Remember that you're working for the American people, not for yourself. And I think government service is very good, but public service is even better of any type. So try to do something that gives back to your country at the beginning of your career or later in your career or some other way through philanthropy. But try to give back to your country because I think that's going to be something that's going to make you a lot happier than, than just making more money. Well, on that note, I think a great topic to cover now is you are one of the initial participants of the Giving Pledge, committing to donating more than half your wealth to philanthropy. What's been your approach to that? And how do you think about that? And also not just doing it personally, but also trying to be a leader on the world stage for everybody else. Well, I came from modest circumstances, as I said, so I didn't aspire to make money. I had no interest in money. I was really only interested in public service. And then when public service didn't want me anymore, I had to go out and I actually made some money. I got lucky. I decided to give it all away, not half of it, but all away, basically because I don't really want to burden my kids with billions of dollars that they you know, don't really need necessarily. I've given them a good education and they're hardworking. They don't need to inherit billions of dollars, in my view. Secondly, I think I can do more for the country by giving it away in good causes. And the cause of the things that I do is mostly health, mostly health, medical research, but I have done a lot in patriotic philanthropy, buying historic documents and giving them to the country like the Magna Carta or or fixing the Washington Monument or the Jefferson Memorial, Lincoln Memorial, things that the government isn't quite doing. But the most important thing is, in, in my view, you should try to find something that you're passionate about and do something with it in, in terms of philanthropy. And I like to remind people that philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean rich people writing checks. So if you're not wealthy, give your time. That's your most valuable thing that you have is your time. Time, your ideas, anything. So you, you don't have to be wealthy to be a philanthropist in my view. 
the woman, Wendy Kopp, who created Teach for America, she didn't give any money to it or any grant amount. She didn't have any, but she created Teach for America, which I think is a very good program. And in my view, she's a philanthropist, not just uh, a person who created an organization. I also think that in, in the end, everybody should try to do something to make their country better. I think we, you know, people are prepared to die for this country. All of us who have some ability to do so should do something to give the, make the country a better place. I think you'll be happier if you do. And in the end, the most elusive thing in life is personal happiness. Thomas Jefferson said that the pursuit of happiness was something that the country was all about, but he never defined in the ensuing 50 years what happiness was. And he never defined it because it's too hard to find. You, you will figure out what happiness is for you and pursuing it is very important, but it's hard to find it. When you find it, pursue it as much as you can. So I have tried to give back to society in, in various ways. Some would probably work, some have not worked as well, but I enjoy what I'm doing. And I, you know, I'm trying to be a bit of a role model for other people because I'm not going to be around forever to do this. So other people, I hope, will pick up the cudgel and do some of the same things I've done. One other topic about you, David, you are known to be a very avid reader. And obviously now you're additionally an author. I want to just ask what role has reading played in your career and your own development and leadership? And if you have one or two books that everyone listening must read, no matter what, outside of your own book, How to Lead, what would they be? Well, on the first question, uh, my parents were not wealthy, as I mentioned, so we didn't have a lot of books hanging around the house. But my parents encouraged me to read so I could get my library card when I was six years old. You were allowed to get 12 books a week at that age. And I would read them the first night. And I have to wait another week before I could take out 12 more books. I love reading. And I, reading books is very important. It, it focuses the brain much more. Reading a, a tweet or a, an article isn't the same as reading books. And I have gotten very involved in this area you know, underwriting the National Book Festival. I've been the co-chair for the last 10 years, and I have a number of interview shows where I interview authors, and I try to keep up with the books by reading them. So I try to read 100 books a year on subjects I know something about. I couldn't read physics textbooks or chemistry textbooks, but something subjects I know about. And I think it's sad, but it's hard to believe this, but it's sad. 14% of the Americans in this country, adults, cannot read past the fourth grade level. They're functionally illiterate. If you're functionally illiterate, you have a pretty good chance of being in our criminal justice system and having a less desirable life than you should otherwise have. So we need to do much more on literacy. And I've created literacy awards at the Library of Congress. That's a drop in the bucket. We need to do much more in that area. But also, people who that can read often don't. So 30% uh, of Americans who graduate from college never read another book in their life after they graduate, never read another book in their life. 50% of Americans have not been in a bookstore or bought a book in the last five years, 50% of Americans. So, you know, you've gone to Harvard and Harvard probably is not typical, but the average person who graduates from college is not out there reading books. So I think it's very important. It's an important part of my life. You know, I now I'm a, I'm a rare book collector and I, I have some of the most rare books in the country. And I eventually will give them to a, an appropriate organization like the Library of Congress or something like that. David, if you have to recommend one or two books, every person needs to read, what would it be? Well, the, the most important book that anybody could probably read, if you had one book, I would say is probably in the Western civilization is the Bible, because the Bible has so many lessons in it and it has so much about history and so forth and, and so forth. But I think there are a lot of great biographies out there. And I'm reading two right now. That I've interviewed the authors on or about to. One is my former boss, Jimmy Carter, a great book written by Jonathan Alter. And then there's a great book on my former partner, Jim Baker, called The Man Who Ran Washington by uh, Peter Baker and his wife, Susan Glasser. Great books. If you want to read a great history book, read The Hemings of Monticello by Annette Gordon-Reed. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Spectacular book. If you want to read about a great American hero, read about Charles Lindbergh by Scott Berg. It won the Pulitzer Prize as well. There are a lot of great books out there, but it almost doesn't make a difference what you read. It's reading. 
The focus is the brain. It focuses your attention and it, and it opens new worlds to you and inspires you. That's why you should read. I love it. Last question on you, David. So you mentioned a little bit of, you know, Jeff Bezos has these rules. Don't make decisions before 10 or after five, sleep eight hours. What is the rules that keep David Rubenstein on the track? Well, I, you know, try to uh, pay attention to the details of things and prepare for things. Jim Baker used to say that he was taught by his father, prior preparation prevents poor performance. So try to be prepared, try to treat other people, obviously the way you would like to be treated, try to be respectful of other people, try to be sensitive to what other people's concerns are, try to not brag about how great you are, try to have some humility and, and make sure that you try to do something for society that justifies your existence on the face of the earth. None of us know why we're really here, but presumably there's some greater purpose, but hopefully you will feel that being part of that greater purpose, if you've done something that makes your own country better than it was before you came. I love that, David. I've asked this question now of 75 incredible CEOs, and you're the only one who said, do things for other people. It will make you feel, you will, it'll make you feel more connected, more purposeful, which will ultimately probably help you perform better. That That's pretty special. That's pretty awesome to hear you say it. Well, I, I think it's true. And I would give you, leave you with one comment. You know, my mother was not sophisticated about business. When I started Carlisle, she thought, you know, she didn't understand what it was. And every time the stock market would go down by 10 points, she'd think I would going bankrupt. She didn't understand the business world. But when Carlisle was doing very well, she would, you know, I would tell her what we're doing and she didn't really quite understand it. She knew I was maybe doing well. When I started giving away large sums of money, she started calling me and saying, I'm really proud of you. I'm proud of your giving away the money and so forth. She never called me and said, I'm proud of building your company. And then when she passed away a few years ago, I went through her scrapbooks and the only things in her scrapbooks were my philanthropy things that have been written about, nothing about Carla. So she took much greater pride in my giving away the money than in my making the money. And in the end, I also think that if you can make your mother proud of you, you know, what more do you want out of life? And I always remind people, try to honor your parents while they're alive, because it's a lot harder to do it when they're gone. And so I try to remind people my own age or younger, don't forget your parents. They created you, they brought you into this world, and they take greater pride in you than anybody else. So honor them while they're alive. I love that, David. Oh my gosh. Uh, if I if my I have a son, if my son can be like you, I would holy moly. Um, last question of the whole interview, David. In your whole career, what was the biggest pinch me moment? When I was young and working at the White House, you know, I'm walking out of the Oval Office, just the president and me getting on Marine One, and my parents are standing there and they're wondering how they're their only child is getting on the Air Force One to go to Camp David with President Carter. So that was probably something I, I was probably, you know, made my parents proud, which probably uh, was good for, for me. And I enjoyed that. But I, I guess in the end, when I was elected chairman of the board of my alma mater, Duke University, you know, I went there with no means and so forth. I was probably not even known by anybody in the class and I later became the chairman of the board of the university. That was something that I enjoyed a lot. And, and a lot of the nonprofit gifts that I've given, patriotic philanthropy, fixing the Washington Monument, buying the Magna Carta, uh, these were things that I enjoyed. David, what a great way to end this interview. Everybody out there listening, if you want to learn more about David and his new book, How to Lead, check out davidrubenstein.com or find it anywhere the books are sold. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. David, thank you for this incredibly special interview. It is an honor to have you. Thank you. My pleasure.